You're listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast of readings and archives from City Lights books and publishers. To learn more, visit www.citylights.com. Welcome to City Lights. My name is Peter. Uh, it's fabulous to be live again. Don't you think? Yeah? Thank you. Um, so, uh, before each of these events, I'd like to make a little land acknowledgement. Uh, as many of you know, this is Ramatishaloni ancestral homeland, so we take a moment to kind of, uh, you know, pay our respects to those who came before us as stewards of the land. So uh, we're celebrating Pocahontas, published by Alfred Knopf. Uh, the poetry in Pocahontas is an exploration of identity. It offers like a kind of a new way of engaging with history, of drawing lines between modernity and ancestry, desire and exploitation from a woman's indigenous perspective. Tai Tibble was born and raised and lives in Wellington, New Zealand. Uh, in 2017, she completed a master's degree in creative writing in the International Institute of Modern Letters in Victoria University, where she was a recipient of the Adam Foundation Prize in Creative Writing. Her second book of poetry, Rangikura, is going to be published in the United States in 2023. Pohandis is her first debut release. It is customary here at City Lights to welcome authors at the beginning of their careers. This has been really a pleasure kind of going through this wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, Tommy Orange, of course, needs a little introduction. He's the author of There There. We posted him before. Um, I want to take a moment also to welcome John Freeman, who is here with us tonight, who is the editor of Freeman's Journal. He's going to be saying a few words. He's executive editor over at uh, Knopf. Uh, he also has a wonderful connection. He's, he, a few know about this. He's also an amazing poet, besides an editor and just a writer of nonfiction. Uh, so his new book of poetry is called Wind Trees. It's by Copper Canyon Press. We're going to be celebrating it tomorrow night, so come on down again. Uh, I'm going to turn it over to him to say a few words about Tai and this book. Thanks, Peter. Thank you for coming, everyone. Um, I'll just say something very brief about how meaningful it is to get Tommy and Tay together. Um, Tay, uh, as Peter mentioned, was born in 1995. Uh, and is rewriting to some degree the Pocahontas myth that came out via uh, the Disney film that was released the year that she was born. Um, but I think even more interesting than that, her debut poetry collection is a, a, a kind of ode to her upbringing and, a, and a, a series of poems about where she is from, but it's very up-to-date and very urban in the sense that the project that her poetry is undertaking is, is quite similar to what Tommy was doing with There There, as in looking at how indigenous people live today in cities, in your case in Wellington and Tommy's in Oakland. And I thought, um, as some of you may not know, Tommy has been unfurling a whole new side of himself, which has always been there, which is that he's a fantastic poet. Um, and I thought, in some ways, this is a, an exciting opportunity to get two people at the beginning of their poetry careers, even though Tommy is well into his writing career. Um, and one last thing I'll say is, w when I uh, first went to New Zealand and, and started hearing about Tay's uh, lyrics, I was on a trip with a Coast Salish uh, writer, um, and as Tay's been saying as we travel on the West Coast, the, the, the highway between uh, the West Coast and um, where she lives in what is now called New Zealand was once a kind of tradeways and a, and a kind of super highway for indigenous people. And it seems like 
one of the things that might restore some of the, the complexity in addition to land acknowledgments and activism is identifying the fact that there is a kind of transnational indigeneity that exists. It's different and it has different expressions and different sounds and, and one of the things we're here to celebrate is how those two sounds sound like next to each other. So without further ado, Tay, please kick us off. Hey, kia ora, kia ora, kia ora tātou. Uh, ko hikirangi mi, mi whitimatarau te maunga, ko awatere me waiapu te awa, ko te whanau apanui me uh, Ngāti Pro te iwi, ko Titai Rāwhiti me te whanganui atara ahau, ko Teitabu Tuku Ingoa. Hello, no mai haru mai, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you to City Light, to John for bringing me, for Tommy, um, and to the mana whenua, to the original owners of this land the current owners of the land, <laughs> I should say so. Um, what, what, what should I start us with? Uh, a reading? Or is, it, is that what we're up to? Do you mind starting with uh, Thin White Clouds? Is that what it's called? Long White Clouds. Long White Clouds, I'm sorry. Not that one. I didn't read that one, so I'm not sure what it is in the book. Okay, I'll read this one called Long White Clouds, because on request from Tommy. And Long... And, uh, and the Māori name for New Zealand is Aotearoa, and that means long white clouds. Long white clouds. All anyone ever does around here is grow weed and stare into burnt out houses, into the rabbit hole, into the cars, into the skin, and roll their cars, their eyes, their eyes, their cigarettes, and kick snow kick rugby balls, kick each other, kick bad habits only to find another like an eel in the creek, in the backyard, in the dark, in the winter and try to kill it on the rocks, chase the girls in a shed, a bathtub, a bed with wet fingers, eyes, tongues and t-shirts from spill beer, spill cum, spill blood, spilled secrets Bad boys with bad skin and bad tattoos and bad reputations because here all anyone ever does is swear across their hearts at referees, at other drivers, taking to the road. Because all anyone ever wants around here is out of home, of the closet, of the relationship, of the six-story window open to the coal, to the clouds, to the sky. Because all anyone ever does around here is die. I feel like you should also read uh, Tongi in King Country. Yeah. <laughs> okay, uh, yeah, this is kind of a long sequence, so. so kick back and relax now. But um, it's perhaps with Tangi in the King Country. And I actually wanted to tell you about this the other day, John. You mentioned something about funeral processions. I wanted to tell you about how Māori, or we, how we have our funeral position, uh, processions called Tangi or Tangihanga. And it's like a, when someone, when someone passes on to the other side, we like to take them back home to our ancestral lands, to our marae, like our meeting house. What we do is we will bring the body inside the house some of the time, some, some tribes have different ways of doing it, but generally bring the body inside the house and we all 
and we all sleep on mattresses around the house together with our past relatives for can be can be usually three days up to seven days we all sleep with them we mourn we cry we share stories all night until the final day when we rave at sun when we get up at sunrise go bury our our loved one in our urupa in our ancestral graveyard and then we eat and party <laughs> and, and celebrate their life after that um but it's a really i mean i think i saw it on some sort of like top 10 youtube thing one time saying like morbid ancient like top 10 morbid rituals or something like that and savage rituals or something like that but it's actually the most beautiful way to mourn someone like it's one of my favorite things about my culture is, is that 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 um procession um it's really beautiful and also means that we just come to know death as sort of like a positive thing but anyway this poem is called tangi in the king country and it's kind of from the perspective of little kids little city kids going to a tangi for the first time the grass the first time the children were ever driven deep into the king country the sky was overcast and never cleared after eight hours in the car, they swung the door out and gasped, their little lungs drunk on stale air. They collapsed onto the grass, which after the stiff tan leather of station wagon seats was soft and meaty. They lay on their backs and tried to relax their muscles, which were tired from fighting for dominion over the middle seat armrest. But they were told off by a stranger who told them to call her auntie in a stern kind of way that they were unused to hearing and it nearly made them cry. When she finally dropped her opal pukana eye, she stared towards the soil. This grass is sacred. It is still watered by old blood. That was enough. They didn't ask again, but they were desperate to know whose blood. The smell. There are no morgues that deep in the king country. Instead, the body is treated with animal fats and salts and washed in the river. But by the third day, the smell of grease and a hundred thrashing bodies began to stain and stick to everything. At first, they were bemused at how the smell got everywhere and how it seemed to sit in the skull and the sinus, sinuses? No, sinus, on the back of the teeth and on the upturn of the nanny's lips especially. But then it became sickening and thick, as if it would kill them like gas left on. At night, they took to burying themselves down the other end of their sleeping bags, where it was dark and tight and made more than one of them claustrophobic. Hera, the eldest, but not by much, had thought to pick flowers from the back by the hangi pits, and they took turns holding them to their noses as if they were sleep-inducing opiates. But they were bitter and soggy, and smelt like dirt and wet foliage. But it was a gesture, and better than the dark rot that seemed to stick to everything, and later, as they would discover, would even cling to memory. I wonder if I should keep going or... I mean, it's the full poem, um, as it should be. How are you all doing? Do we... Yeah, it's, it's a beautiful poem. I, I, I wanted to hear the whole thing. Okay. The food. The kids reckoned the food was all soft because all the old nannies had gummy smiles. The cabbage was boiled to the point of liquid, the white bread damp and smothered in margarine. 
the nennings disgustingly dipped it into little brown cups of cup of tea. The pork and the chicken fell apart at the lightest touch and were popular with everyone, the small children especially. The other meats were suspicious and wild. They avoided the tiny crunchy birds and gelatinous globs of cold grey eel, which here touched squarely. One of their new cousins showed them how to use fry bread like a sponge, mopping up the spilled sugar from the plastic tablecloths and then eating it. The blobs of half-cooked dough served in a soup of weeds and roots was the worst, but also the most fun. Hemi, the youngest but not by much, tucked a lump into his pocket. He wanted to take one home to show to his friends or his teacher. On second thoughts, he snatched another to later throw at his sister. The burial. The kids had a cry because everyone else was having a cry. Hera encouraged Hemi to have a crack at making the long kind of whale noises the nannies made, which was swiftly met with a hard kick in the ass from their father. Confused by this, Hemi went on to prod all the crying nannies in the bum, which made his mum oscillate between shame and shameful stifled laughter. So he was grabbed and made to hold hands with his dad in the back and he was mad because Tama laughed at him and gave him the fingers, but mostly he was mad because he could no longer see the earth waiting to swallow the coffin in a single hungry bite. The ghosts. They washed their hands because everyone else was washing their hands. There were two sawn-off milk bottles and a mossy trough filled with rainwater. They watched their mother make the shape of a cross across her chest, while the nannies tossed handfuls over their shoulders so they copied but it could take so they copied, but with tactful aim again and again until their father got so mad that they were sent to bed with no tea and no chocolate thins for supper. Angry in their sleeping bags, Hera told them that she had heard from their mean auntie that if they didn't wash their hands seriously, then the ghost would come and pull their eyeballs out, which made Hemi too scared to close his eyes. In the middle of the night, he woke up Hera with desperate puppy begging. He asked her, soft, and fuck a ma to please take him to the bathroom and help him wash his hands again, just to be sure. The goodbye. Hemi made it through the night, and in the morning, Dad said they were going to go home, but before they could leave, they had to clean. They helped stack all the mattresses in the middle and had to resist bouncing on the pile like a trampoline because the mean auntie was watching them with beady eyes that followed them everywhere, just like the wooden men on the walls. Hemi wondered if the men hadn't washed their hands right either, and that's why their pupils were made of power. Hemi cried for the next hour and hid under the car. After the final karakia, mum, dad and Hira came and found him. Give your auntie a kiss, she had sloppy juju lips that blubbered all over him as she kissed him and called him Baba. Hira laughed and dad looked stressed. Mum said she was sad to go. Thank you. So John, uh, as he said earlier, um, I'm sort of beginning as a poet, even though I had a book out and um, all of that. And so uh, to start, I'm going to read a poem I wrote for John about him, an ode to John. 
My first time in New York, there was a snowstorm. I went around and met with editors about my not-yet-then book. After having met my agent for the first time in person just hours before. Kicking shell-toe Adidas through the gutter sludge, I felt the most insignificant person to ever have stepped across every street I crossed. My agent carried me along as if on her back across a great body of water. Back at my agent's as if secret headquarters, practically gasping for air, I met John Freeman. He looked intense. I had the sense that I was supposed to have known who he was. Our conversation led us through books and cities we knew in common, and we talked about how much running had become running enough for us. Everything around his face softened to a glow. I didn't know if I should trust that a good thing was happening to me because of a book I wrote that wasn't even a book yet, but what everyone kept referring to as a manuscript, like it was some precious printed thing and not some dot doc file in Google Drive. I didn't know if I deserved to be among such uncommonly good people like my agent and John Freeman. I never know if I deserve to be anywhere, even now. When I was picking up my shoes to leave, my agent said something like, I really shouldn't be going around the city in those, pointing to my shoes. John walked away and came back with these heavy-duty steel-toe caterpillar work boots. He handed it to me, them to me, telling me he needed new ones anyway. I went out into the snow and made my way back to the room I had rented working through the snow and the gutter sludge easily. I kept the boots, used them to walk through other snows and sludges and rough patches where I needed to keep my feet protected, always thinking of John and the work he had done in those boots, how I was walking in them. Made me want to do the kind of work I could tell he believed needed to be done in this world on the page. The work required good boots and belief, even the snow and the gutter sludge, even generosity. The work was above all about giving what you could to the work itself. It was about giving it all away. So I think it's your turn. I read, I read two. What's that? I read two in a row. Oh, so I should do another yeah, one? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to do the first poem that I ever published, and it was by John um, in Freeman's Journal. This is not meant to put any, any more heat on John. I was the most heat he's going to get. But he, you know, he published this. I wrote this poem in China on a bus, um, just stopping briefly. I was with my family, um, my wife's family, and uh, sometimes poems come really fast. And I sent it to him, still on the bus, um, 
and he supported the poem through to publication. Um, so, it's called, uh, called Guangzhou. The hooks in the nexus of my solar plexus rhyme with what remains when I remove them. All my loved ones who love me wrong float like comic ghost tales in the memory I have of our making ground together. We make land when we make memories. We land when we remember, having been suspended in the air, making a living or doing whatever keeps us up. Land, memory, all this can be taken. Anyone's home can be anyone else's home. I love my loved ones wrong too. Then like comet genie third wishes, I wish for more wishes and for more of everything and am never fed. Hunger is not the word I would use for what I am. The bridge over which we span is not as connective as we believe it to be. It is so wide as to not be a bridge at all. The expanse does not connect but makes vague our relation. There can be no water under a bridge that is not a bridge, which means we will never forgive each other for never being enough. Split pea soup soul that I have, no ham hock, no meter bone soaked flavor, but green, green blandness. I used to have taste, but became too, too new again. This is all to say that I am lost, but only now know that I am. This is all to say we are unmade and supposed to be. I fold like cardboard on a daily basis, break silent soft underfoot of people who don't know me, who are supposed to know me most. Best? It's because I've always been hiding and show like I'm open, like I'm willing to be vulnerable, open, and honest. These are lies. Almost everything can be. I am vulnerable, open, but for reasons they can't see. I'm dying, you are too. But I'll never become a ghost because I've always been one. Something is going from me. I've begun to early mourn. Is it more years that I won't have because of the way that I live my life? Do I deserve them, want them? It's not that. I've known they would leave me for some time now. You don't give love, it comes out like blood. It's that I've been opened. I don't want not to have been. It's what people do with it. When you tell them you love them, when you give them what they want, it's exactly what they want, then they want more. I'll give it all away. I never wanted to keep it. I'll put their hooks back in my sides. I'll drag them if I have to. Where? To Guangzhou or to wherever we're all going. Wherever all of what this is has always been headed toward. I'm going to. because I think there's some Māori in the audience. <laughs> like, that's really awesome. Like, thank you so much, like, your Huma. Like, um, it's really, I don't know, it's really awesome that you, you, you guys have come, come, come out. Um, it's cool. <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, <laughs> um, I would like to read one from my second collection. 
that's going to be out here sometimes, that's okay. Because it's kind of my beat poem, and we're here at City Lights. <laughs> um, if that's alright with you guys. <laughs> um, and this poem is called Tohunga. Tohunga. Visionary, like my ancestors, I saw a sky of whales, a pale people. Like my ancestors, I inhaled the Bible, swallowed the rifle like an eight-inch cock, whatever, like Donna Summer, I swirl in a floor-length dress, said, I love to love, I love to fuck. But just like my ancestors knew, to you, I was a savage, wild jasmine, ass out, blacked out with dollar signs, feline like a Bengal tiger, and it's true that anyone on their hands and knees is essentially a praying animal. Radical, like my ancestors, I saw the flower child, those wasted liberals and my prehistoric flare-wearing prints, and like my ancestors, I kissed and kissed and kissed and tasted an entire lifetime of taking advantage and being aware of it, so at least when my dress, when my dress hits the floor, like molting bark, your eyes follow and I can interpret your fixation as shame. Are you sorry? What does that say about me if I think even a suggestion of apology might be sexy? So like my ancestors, I sculpt you from the dirt until you rise. I make you meet my eye, then suck you all up with a slurp like a kinner. That's the way Modi order. Cause just like Papa the Tuanuku, I breathe life, which is why my mother tongue can still sing despite its history of whippings. I say, good on you, babe. You got what you wanted, the juicy earth, the factoried women, the rivers, the mountains, all bowing for you. I'm proud of you, the way you erected monuments in your image, so foreign, so violently unimagined, just like my ancestors, I couldn't have even have dreamed it. Poe after poe of graying glass, cracking the sky, and the sky was full of whales. Wow, I say, good on you, babe. And then I spread my hair all over a hotel pillow because I love a winner, and you hit the jackpot with me, with all us silly girls, for believing that you were God for as long as we did, but now the atmosphere is betraying you, and you are reddening in places where I can bear it. A warrior like my ancestors, I survived annihilation, and the rivers that run beneath my skin have not been left dry just yet. And you can see it all. The Ampan gold, the wild ponamu, the thrashing tuna, family jewels you can never have, tonga you can never taste, forbidden fruit reserved for me. Are you afraid again? Like you were of Eve, the world is getting unbearably hot, but so am I, and so is she. Just going back and forth with poems. <laughs> okay, that was beautiful. Thank you. This is called Zebra. One. The past begins every day, again, new as any Tuesday morning view of soft light through the kitchen window curtain. From here to where it bled, through then. Memory is the elephant in every room. Watch it when you can occur to you. That one time when the light stretched across the floor 
over your father's back. He was stretched out like the light, but here they were on top of each other. He was always lying anywhere in the house. You stared so long, you were staring now through the front windshield of a minivan that never felt many then or now. The night had come on as slow as the arrow star seemed to be moving, there being no other cars on the two-lane highway, where up ahead you saw a whole field of lights, an array of brightly colored circles, all the primary colors, fixed to poles for what? Some farm to gather what crop? Like lollipops for city systems to suck from, or like the lit heads of limbless beings gathered there behind barbed wire fences to protect them from us, or us from them. And why did the distance between them become the distance between you from yourself? You left yourself there to get away from the doomed sound of your parents scream whispering in argument. Disappear inside the lights was not what anyone told you to do when you did it so naturally. You went away inside them like an egg back into its bird, escaping what had been inside the van trapped your sisters whispering to you a darkness inside the darkness behind the seat behind you, driving deeper into the flatness of an Oklahoma that stretched too far in every direction, through every window of the van, further and further from Oakland, so further from yourself than you'd ever been. These days spent back and forth between Oakland and that former Indian territory where your father was born and where your mother was reborn, saved by Jesus and Jerry Falwell in front of the light of the TV. On a dark afternoon, your father had been drunk for months under a bridge. There was nothing left but the light on the TV and Jerry Falwell. Two. The occurrence of memory is always asking you, why this, why now? Follow it hiccuping down the halls of your collapsing hippocampus. Two fingers at your temple, thumbs up, is a gun you have always owned. A gun upside your temple, up there inside where every color is hued and imbued with not meaning but the insistence of itself as more than color and noise. Come find out, they say. The memories occur to you, which is another way of saying memory happens to you which is another way of saying you are the one hiccuping down the halls of your hippocampus drunk on a word you think means love, but only ever comes out slurred or in your sleep told to sleeping dogs. Let them lie. Memory rents a room inside your head striking against its walls the days. Look, they aren't more than scratches, tallies stacked in fives. The prisoner telling stories to the one listening on the other side of the wall is not a prisoner, but a thief. Listen to their voices for their tones. Are you mad? Are they mad? The paper won't not get wet. Let it ink through. Bleed more. Bleed the most. Or why else can't you seem to remember enough is a question you don't want to have to ask that you cannot ask in the absence of there not being enough to remember. Yet look what amounts in you amounts as you that little amount there in your empty hand held out like a bowl the nothing 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 you say give me more of this the aim is to touch 
the pain to feel what is already there, had been there, here, where you'd been waiting like a temple for its fingers, like the open mouth of a flower. The bee is not here to sting you. There below the broken stream, the rain bends a stem, falls you to the ground. None of this is more than the pull, the gravity of your marveling at the weight of it all falling around you as it apparently must. The sound is coming from the other side of the walls. Your ears bend to the sound of the prisoners bickering again, dressed in stripes, you and I, as if painted for an old war, a war too old, too cold to be called a war anymore. Listen to us whisper screaming about the conditions of our conditions while the guard tells us to return to ourselves in a tone like you don't have to go home but you can't stay here. Four. Going back and forth between Oakland and Oklahoma kept telling you the same thing. You belong, you don't belong, you belong, you don't belong. The fight between the seats up at the front of the minivan said the same thing. Even their skin and hair being so different, it hurt sometimes to have to think of having come from them both. Here on the other side, of the other side, it's still you. Not in a mirror, not even on the other side. Everyone here is bleeding into the past where we always were, of different stripes and from different stars, sure, opposite plots on the same land. There had always been something of the zebra about us, but we were never not horses. We were never not running, 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 wild, not free. I could maybe manage one more. Maybe <laughs> one more, then we can chat shit. <laughs> or I have Q and A. What about the last one? The last one. Why you? Or the essays? I have multiple. What's up? Identity politics. I buy a Mana Party t-shirt from AliExpress. $9.99 free shipping via standard post. Estimated arrival, 14 to 31 working days. Tracking unavailable via DSL, Asian size XXL. I wear it as a dress with thigh-high vinyl boots and fishnets. I post a picture to Instagram. Am I navigating correctly? Tell me. Which stars are my ancestors looking at? And which ones burnt the black of searching irises and reflected something genuine back? I look to Rihanna and Kim Kardashian shimmering into Roski crystals. Makes my eyes glow with seeing. I'm inhaling long white clouds and icy rivers of milk running towards own oceans of sunlit honey. Tell me, am I navigating correctly? See, I want to spend my money on something bougie like custom-made Ponamu hoop earrings. I want to make them myself, but my line doesn't trace back to the beauties in the South making amulets with elegant fingers. I go back into blackness. I go back and fill in the gaps, searching through archives of advertisements. Welcome to the wonderland of the South Pacific. Tiki bars, traffic lights, cocktails, and paper umbrellas. Tell me, am I navigating correctly? 
staring through the storm drunk and wet face, waking up to the taste of hangover, a dry mouth, a strange bed, shirt above my head as the flag fluttering over everything. What were we celebrating? The 6th of February is the anniversary of the greatest failed marriage that our nation has ever seen. In America, couples have divorce parties. We always arrive late to every scene. Tell me, am I navigating correctly? The sea our ancestors traverse stretches out further than the stars. Not necessarily. <laughs> I don't know what what are we what time are we working with? <laughs> You all probably want like um, conversation and then questions. I'm very happy to never read a poem again in my life. <laughs> but they're not hit for you. <laughs> they're good. What do, what's like, um, do you sense or feel a difference between writing prose and poetry or? I think I started with poetry in like a really private way. Um, and always wanted to secretly insert it in all of my prose. Um, so, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not formally trained, you know, in either one. Like by the time I got to the MFA, like I had been doing most of the work on my own. Um, and the MFA was, was pretty hands off in terms of like they're not being authority over to the Institute of American Indian Arts, and there's not like a big authority hands in your work and telling you this is the way it needs to be. Yeah. So, um, so I feel like I was allowed to do um, poetry stuff in the prose that I that I always want to do, and I always want my favorite poets to write novels instead of poetry books, um, including you. And and there were I have. <laughs> And there were amazing moments in this poetry collection, this newest one, um, this, that, I mean, you're already doing the storytelling and the, and the novel work in it. So I guess to reverse the question, like what, what is the difference for you? Because clearly as a storyteller uh, and, you know, having all of the tools of a novelist, that's already happening in, in this book. So, uh, what is the difference for you? Probably longevity. <laughs> um, just looking at one idea. Um, I there isn't a difference for me, and it's it's funny you mention that because when I was in Vancouver, you guys, <laughs> when I was in Vancouver, I was reading poems, and then this old guy was like, "That's not poetry. That's storytelling." <laughs> and I was like, "And <laughs> so no." Um, but yeah, there's not too much of a difference for me, but I do, like, po I think poetry is my favourite form, but I consider myself a storyteller, and, like, that's just me wanting to take up the tradition of, like, our ancestors, of my ancestors, you know, of sharing our knowledge and whakapapa in different forms, like, you know, we traditionally had poetry and waiata and motitia and things like that. Um, but writing a novel is proving hard for me. <laughs> it's challenging, because... I don't know if I'm up to structure, plots, not really my strong points. I'd just be writing anything, but it's fun, and I do want to... I think I think my, my attraction to writing a novel or 
or fiction is like just having so much opportunity to go at an idea. And I'm always writing about the same themes anyway. I just want like a hearty place to like flesh it out. Um, so, so you write a lot about family, um, and this is tricky territory, um, I think for everybody, um, but you do it in a really honest way. And I think partially you attack the problem, which I think everyone can agree. Family is a problem. I, if everyone's like super happy with their families, like I don't trust you. You're like the psychopath in the family. Um, but I think the way you do it is is through POV changes in a really interesting way. Like you, like the tongue in King Country, you said was from the kids' perspective, and you're just like constantly switching POV. Even the essays at the beginning, you start in the second person and immediately shift to the first person, and you do it really fluidly. And uh, I think you know, as a reader, myself as a reader, like I fully accepted the shifts, and I love POG, POV shifts. Uh, but tell me about how POV and your writing process, how that changes the shape of the poems and, and where that comes from to even do that. I think like, I think the first thing is like, I kind of, well, this, this book's really about four generations of women and they're women of my generation, my mother, my nana, my great grandmother, who are all very important to me. We're all the firstborn daughters of the firstborn daughters, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, for like generations, it's been like that. Um, and I have a weird, maybe it's, yeah, now I'm like criticizing myself because I do have some sort of like entitlement to their lives. <laughs> and I, but I think that's kind of part of just the way that we see the world. Like I just really just feel all I am is an amalgamation of my ancestors and the most immediate and apparent and effective ones in my life are my mum, my nana, and my great grandmother. Um, so, and in this book I was also like it's my first time like exploring themes of like colonization that old thing and I wanted to like and I was trying to sh you know I wanted to explore the way that that affects you know a family or family lives and I wanted to yeah explore the ongoing effects or emphasize the ongoing effects and the way for that seemed natural for me to do that was to write from these different women's perspective throughout history and kind of the same things that they've been facing through all these different years. So you, you have a refrain uh, in the book, um, representation matters, and I'm wondering, there's a part, it occurs early in the book, referencing the Pocahontas film, which, um, you know, it's it's easy to be like, that movie sucks and is horrible and it was offensive, um, but for those of us who grew up, like, I went to dances with wolves with my family, with my dad who went to Cal, like graduated the American Indian Studies degree and was like sincerely crying in the film to be represented. So representation is itself complex. It's not um, like if you do it, then you're good and you're in the clear. Like it's, it's a super complex thing. And I feel like the way you're, I mean, it's the title of the book. It's, it's a sort of Maori, um, reworking language-wise of it and if you want to speak to that that would be great too but representation matters is a refrain that you use in really creative ways and i feel like the way you first use it 
is talking about how Pocahontas, your mom in a poem tells you, um, or the speaker in the poem, that Pocahontas was a real person and that she went like to Europe and like, you know, the real story. And you end it with the refrain, representation matters. And I couldn't help but feel the word like representation. Because representation is like an empty, like just throw in the diversity, whatever, um, and hire the diversity higher. But but the word is representation. I think as you're using it there, and and I and it's really for for especially for indigenous people all over the world who have been represent represented uh, represented wrong. The matter of representing ourselves is really at stake when it comes to like when we do get screen time or page time um, or publication or or attention. Like it really is like on us in a heavy way to like this is actually what it's like um so can you talk about like the that refrain in the book and and what representation matters means to you yeah um yeah i like that so much that representation because yeah i mean i don't know if you guys haven't i mean i'm sure you guys are having these conversations here about you know indigenous story sovereignty and things like that um, yeah, like I was, I think in that piece, the, the first title essay, Pocahontas, where I talk, where that refrain comes in and I talk about these kind of things. I was just thinking about, yeah, like when you're, because growing up in like my generation, like, like basically through the early, early 2000s, like it was so fuzzy. <laughs> like it was just so white and blonde and skinny, like it just everything. <laughs> Everything <laughs> and everything. Um, and just because there was just a void of representation, and in New Zealand, like there, were, there was like not any representation that I ever saw of Māori or Pacifica on our like own media was not good, derogatory, and just you know, just colonial propaganda. <laughs> but um, yeah, that I just. Like when I saw Pocahontas for the first time as a kid, and I was little, like I was little, little, like under five. Like I just remember being like, "What the?" Because she was the only one that looked like me. She was so, and she was so gorgeous, and she was so nice, and she just listened with her heart, and she understood. And she like, and if I had, and like you know, I would have just gone on my happy little life, thinking like, "Oh yeah, oh, what a happy little story that was." She saved the nice white guy from, and they all the happily ever after. And then like, yeah, my mum telling me that at a young age too, like, no, that's not what happened. And then you know, that's and and in the buckets and the and the and the poem it says, you know, mum told me that John, that Pocahontas is real, but she went with John Smith to England and got his disease and died. That even amidst there's like there's like a I hope I hope there is anyway. There's like an omission, there's like a purposeful omission there too that you don't even know, that is omitting even more information that she was Mosem Matsuoka and she was like a 10 year old girl, like, you know, it's just, it's up, like, and yeah, I think, and I just talking about that, like, just thinking about that kind of stuff, like, I, I would just so readily accept it, and then the critical thoughts, thoughts come later as an adult when you look back, like, because I think as well as being an amalgamation of my ancestors, I'm just an amalgamation of all my influences, and I think that's like what I always kind of, kind of, write about in my book is like this big intersection of being indigenous and also being, just, pop obsessed and being, you know, modern. Um, so yeah, I just feel like I'm also just an amalgamation of my influences and things that I enjoyed as a kid. And it was like yeah, Pocahontas and Pussycat Dolls. 
but yeah, I don't think like, you know, it's super, I don't know, especially now, I don't know why I'm saying this, because I'm just going on a little kind of side rants, but especially now, like having this, having my platform grow now and coming over here to share like stories and like stories that at home, you know, people get the context, it, it's kind of more accepted, but now I have to like, I feel a little bit more pressure to like think about what, what, what new, new stories I'm going to write um, to tell, to share with people. Because you're right, it's so important what we say. Well, I think there's also, and this is another thing that comes up in the book, is uh, Whale Rider, which is like, in a way, like the American version of like, oh, of Pocahontas in a way. Like it's, it's our Pocahontas for Maori people. <laughs> It's like this is our cool story about this little girl who rode a whale or whatever um and and you address this and you address the actress's like real life and what it actually looked like and how soon she was killed in game of thrones season one um i think season one or whatever season she was in it was, was early, season seven. it was season seven it was early in season seven episode one um so this idea that uh you know, there's this idea of, of representation, and I think the what you achieve so well in the book is bringing this levity to something that's really heavy. The weight of like representing, having to like negate a lot of the dumb shit. Um, and then include the stuff you actually care about. All in the same time, you do it. You do it like often, swiftly and and deftly. And uh, if you want to talk about whale rider and like how that is the sort of American Pocahontas of Maori people, or like your decision to include that, I'd love to hear you talk about that. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I, I loved Whale Rider when I was little. The movie. Um, yeah, I remember like. Just my aunties renting it one time when it came out, and all me and my cousins watching it. Um, but also, I'm from the East Coast tribes, um, Tifano Api and Nasi Pro. And Nasi Pro, we come from um, like Pororangi, who's a whale rider, is like one of our ancestors. Um, so we, yeah, I mean, the myth's a bit different. But um, yeah, we do believe we came from whale riders, and yeah, it's part of our migration kind of story. Um, yeah, um, I don't know, I was just thinking again, like, I think I wrote a poem, like, literally after watching the episode, like, really quickly, because I was just, and they were so, do you know what I'm talking about, those, those, those little, like, dawn girls, those dawn girls, those three brown dawn girls from, on Game of Thrones, like, they were so sick, they were like, they were like, sicky usos, but they were like, they're badass, and I was like, they're so cool, and then, yup, there she goes, got stabbed by a white man, <laughs> With a heart on a ship, like the scotiest white man possible, and I was like, damn, she could have died any other way, and it would have just been okay. Best Game of Thrones for you, but I was like, this is a this is a slap to my particular face, like, yeah. And then and I wrote their poem quickly afterwards. In the first Suicide Squad, um, Adam Beach, who's like our one of our most premier native actors, he dies within three minutes after like punching a white woman in the mouth, and then like climbing a building he's dead within three minutes of like this is our most sort of comic book moment this is all we have we have one native character and he's dead in three minutes we're still alive like we represent that on tv <laughs> 
How, do, how does everyone feel uh, about Taika Waititi and, and everything happening for him back there? There's like, the, you know, we know him here and, and he's doing amazing things and like, you know, Reservation Dogs is a huge thing for us. Yeah. Um, and working with Sterling Harjo and that. And uh, I know he had sort of like an indie beginning and now he's doing Thor. So like, what is the, what do, what do people feel back there? Um, I mean, we love Taika and like we love his movies and things like that. Um, we in New Zealand, we've kind of we've got a funny attitude towards like celebs. We've got like a we've got a weird vibe going on. We're like kind of I mean we're like kind of a ch- we're like chill we're chill people, and so we expect everyone to be kind of chill. And we also have this thing called tall poppy syndrome. We're like if anyone gets too like big for their boots, we're gonna bully them. Or but people don't really. I don't really see people being too critical of Taika, but like, we just don't probably, yeah. If we saw him, we'd try to pretend like that's just the bro, <laughs> like that's just the bro thing. But um, I'm real curious to how how you guys are, yeah. You can see guys if we more raised dogs and yeah, because I mean that's fuzzy that he's come and done that. I was talking to um some natives from like. Well, like Coast Salish, Salish, and they were talking about, and she mentioned um, like it being quite buzzy that she can't, she doesn't think, she can't think of a, you know, a native, um, Native American, like director that's on, like that's near Taika's profile. I, I don't know, I'm asking this for, but like how, do the natives like him here? <laughs> Taika, yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. yeah. And I think Sterling Harjo is probably like the closest thing, but there's definitely not somebody at his status. Um, just like there's no like comic book superhero native character. Um, so, but Reservation Dogs has been, if you all haven't seen it, it's its a revelation. And Rutherford Falls is really good too. Um, these are like two are like our first native TV shows over here. Like, you know, Canada has like a native TV station and, you know, there are certain ways that like the language revitalization happening in New Zealand, having with the Maori people has been amazing. And it's like a model for, for people doing the work here. And there's a certain amount of reconciliation stuff happening in Canada. That's like, makes it feel really sad to be native in this country yeah. um but these sh- these shows and and i get being a part of it are huge and i think the the con the connection to indigenous people and and seeing colonial systems versus indigenous people as like we can unify behind this right like this, this is not this is not subtle, this particular piece. Yeah. And so it's cool to see like somebody like Sterling Harjo and Taika um, teaming up in that way. Oh, that is really cool, eh? And it's like, I don't know. Uh, my favorite part of honestly having this book out has been getting to like meet you, because we love you, we love you, New Zealand. Like all the Māori writers, we love you. Everyone was so excited that I was going to meet you. Yeah, and um, like meeting um, my friend Sasha, who's a poet up in Seattle. Le Point? Um, yeah, oh, yeah, cool. she's sickening. She was so cool. Um, because, yeah, like like as John was kind of alluding to, like this specific ocean that we're on, I think we're on the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> I don't know where I am. 
it's been a long tour now. Um, like, uh, you know, that that was our highway for 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 thousands and thousands of years before pre-contact, before Pakia or white people or the discoverers of the world had even stepped stepped a boat into the ocean. Like we've been using it for years to travel and. You know, we came to America, like Māori came to America, that's how we got our sweet potato, things like that. Um, and also like in Aotearoa, like, um, lots of tribes, like, look, we come from multiple different waka, meaning we come from multiple different places kind of thing. What was I saying this for? I forgot. Um, yeah, meeting, meeting you guys, Pacific Ocean. <laughs> nah, it's just cool to connect with other natives and like, See, yeah, I just love talking to other natives, seeing what's in common, what the differences are, and yeah, just connecting and supporting each other. And it's cool that Taka's, you know, using his platform to, because he spends a lot of time here, but he should, he, and he should be using his platform to uplift the stories of the mana whenua, the people of the land here. So, good, good for him. <laughs> we should hear one more of your poems. Okay. Yeah, everybody, right? <laughs> You want me to request one? <laughs> the last one, but I don't know if that's... It's not the same as reading the end of a novel. <laughs> now, this poem's called Hawaii, and it's kind of like I was trying to say just before, like... Māori, we believe that before we came to Aotearoa, we came from Hawaii, but we don't... We don't know exactly where Hawaii is. And some tribes have different ideas of where Hawaii is, some of them think Hawaii, some tribes think they came, like my tribe thinks I come, we come from Peru, etc, etc. Um, but Hawaii is also the place that we say we go after we die. It's like our heaven kind of thing. Heaven. This is the name of my little brother, so this is the poem. Hawaii. My mother tired from pregnancy and being alive named her last son Hawaii like the paradise. Some people say it is where we go when we die. They say we dive straight off the edge of Cape Reina and enter the point where the sky hangs so heavy with spirits that it touches the sea. Other people say that that is where we were before we came here by waka or whale or perhaps. That was where we were before there was anything at all where we meant something. Before we discovered, like Eve, God's forbidden fruit in the shape of an eye. I think it must be a womb where everything is born and returns to. Life and death are the color red. They are the color of a cosmic heartbeat rising on his fresh baby flesh, pinched between fingers and kissed. First for me. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm like with books. Um, 
So I went to school for sound engineering. Um, I got my, my BS in um, the sound arts. Totally BS sounding degree, but it was it's a, a legitimate degree that I got in 2004. And um, I've just been very interested in, in music production and the industry and what comes out. And so I, I listen to what comes out uh, like weekly. I, I listen to the new records that are released and um, you know I have my favorites and a lot of the stuff like uh, I don't like but I'm, I'm just interested in and it's the same with fiction like I, I'm constantly tr wanting to know what new sounds are in, in fiction and music like what are people doing with the form um, so I'm constant that's something that I'm constantly listening to is, is new stuff um, I write to like ambient drone music um anything too melodic or with lyrics i can't do and um you know i like i, I have like i don't know dozens of playlists for different moods and and that have to do with am i running am i writing um am i just driving in the car these are all different playlists and um i i'm not going to list a bunch of artists right now um but I'm I'm constantly listening to new music. I guess is the answer I mean to give. Uh, what are you listening to? Well, because I've been on the West Coast, I made this West Coast playlist, which is like Lana Del Rey West Coast and California knows how to party. Listened <laughs> that song like twenty times in the last week. Um, and since this new song came out, that was cool. She's so beautiful. <laughs> And uh, the album I've been liking the most recently is by this, I think she's some black artist from London, her name's Ojirami. Or Oh, yeah. And her album's out, if you like R&B, it's like really, yeah, it's really awesome. Also my friend's uh, back in Aotearoa, friends Takahiri anymore, she just put out an album called Urungunui. And it's beautiful, it's like mostly in Tereo Māori, but the production's so just, yeah, it's got amazing production on it, it's so sick. and it was very hard to be in Aotearoa at that time when it came out. Um, it was very contentious um, and it caused a lot of mamai for our people. There was a lot of upset um, Māori because of the album, because just of the, you know, lots of Māori would love to have their language and never have that level of access to resources that Lord did to be able to create that album. She had um, like our, our best like uh, translate, translators, Henry Kelly, um, I forget his name. He's so respectable too. I'm sorry, sorry. And like Henny Wiki Mohi, who's like a to, to, to help with that project. It was, it was awkward for me because I, I was on one of the music videos. <laughs> I was in the I was in the Soul Power music video. I'm like I like this for like two seconds <laughs> and, and some flowers. And then everyone and then everyone was angry at me. 
after her album came out, because <laughs> I didn't know she was doing a Māori album, give me a break, and I was like, yeah, everyone was like, um, yeah, it got quite heated, some, they're throwing around the word race trader and things like that, it was, it was a very heated time, um, I, 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 I had compassion for her though, because lots of New Zealand artists have, have recorded their songs in Te Reo Māori Pākehā ones as well, um, but it's just, you know, her, her, her level, her platform. Um, I think it's very right that people want to question her if she wants to do that, like for Māori to, you know, challenge her about it. Uh, but I think she handled it quite graciously. She was like, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. But sh- just, you know. Thank you all. Thanks for listening to Live from City Lights, a podcast from City Lights Bookstore and Publishers. Our theme music was provided by Axolotl. All City Lights events are free. To see upcoming events at City Lights Bookstore in San Francisco, check out www.citylights.com events.